Good morning, church. It is a blessing to be with you. And studying for this message, I have uncovered something really interesting about the Bible. There are some really, really short in stature men mentioned in the Bible, if you weren't aware of this. Uh, we're going to be talking about one of the shortest guys in the Bible. His name was Nehemiah, and he was about knee-high, right? But there's an even shorter guy in the Bible whose name is Bildad the Shoe Height, and he was about the height of a shoe, right? And the shortest guy in all of Scripture was the man who slept on his watch. He was so small, he slept on his watch. Does that not, does that not do anything for you guys? Come on, where are my, where are my peeps at? Where are my guys at? So if you're listening online, uh, thanks for joining us. If you're in attendance today, I really appreciate your presence here with us. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 18, the Apostle Paul would say this, If I build again the things that I have destroyed, uh, I really would be a lawbreaker. So Paul's talking about rebuilding, and what he's saying is, look, there are some kinds of rebuilding that is not good. Now what he's talking about here in Galatians chapter 2 is, if he would go back to the legalistic system of behavior that he used to live in, whereby men of their behavior could attain some righteousness for him, that really would be breaking some laws. And the same is true for us. There are things in life that have to be torn down and need to be torn down and stay that way. How about sin in our lives? The things in our lives that influence sin, the sinful behavior in our lives, those things need to be torn down and stay torn down. Or how about iniquity? The, the, the thoughts and attitudes that compel us to sin. And, and those kinds of things need to be torn down and stay torn down. And anything that influences either need to be destroyed. But there are some things in life that the enemy and the spiritual realm would like for us to tear down and leave that way. He wants our spiritual defense mechanisms to be in disarray and malfunctioning. He wants us to be easy targets for his attacks. And just like the human heart without walls is vulnerable, so cities without walls in the time of our story today are also very vulnerable. And so that's part of our lesson, that Nehemiah is, is a man who is from Jerusalem, the city of God, and the city of Jerusalem is in disrepair. And that city is vulnerable to attack, just like the hearts of men and women across the world are vulnerable to attack if their hearts are not fortified with the strength that comes from God. And so we're going to be talking a lot this series about how we can rebuild our lives in a way that makes us successful for the kingdom of God. Interestingly, we're in the middle of one of the biggest tragedies we've had recently Floods have swept through our region of the country and damaged thousands and thousands of homes. Let me give you some statistics really quickly. In the month of March, there was a six-day period where we got over 29 and a half inches of rain, according to weather reports, in six days. That's over half of the average annual rainfall for our area each year. We got half of our rainfall in six days. Uh, based on what I could find in my research, 5,000 homes across our state have been damaged or destroyed as a result of the flood. Not only that, but during the time of the flooding, there were over 70 roadways that were closed, 
lots of those same roadways are still closed as a result of damage or destruction because of the flood. And so that makes our city vulnerable. We're vulnerable to discouragement or or despair. Some of the things we've held most dear in life, uh, some of our most sentimental things on the planet have been literally carried away by waters of the flood. And that vulnerability should cause us as a community to be called to action. Just like we should feel called to action when our lives are obviously in disarray and disrepair. So before we get into our text this morning from Nehemiah chapter 1, let me give you a little bit of a history lesson in terms of what's happening surrounding this story of this guy named Nehemiah. Okay? So here's the way that this goes. King David established Israel as a a world power, and the kingdom was blessed under his leadership. He has a son named Solomon. Solomon sins near the end of his life, and his two sons end up going to war against each other. That war was, was Israel's civil war. The people of God were tragically at war against themselves as a result of their pride, sinfulness, and their disobedience. This length of time is marred by all sorts of sin and destruction and tragedy and chaos. God eventually allows the Assyrian army in 722 B.C. to invade the northern ten tribes called the Kingdom of Israel. And God's allowing this to happen in hopes that, A, it ultimately leads to the salvation of the northern kingdom, and B, to send a message to the southern kingdom, look, your disobedience to the covenant I've established with you is going to cause this same result in your life unless you shape it up. And a couple hundred years later, in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians invade Judah, the southern kingdom, and they carry away the last of God's people to Babylon. The only remnant left were those who pledged loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. They had to kind of stay there and and be loyal to him. So there were two major problems with the people of God during the time of Nehemiah. The first was a religious problem. For you see, the temple was the only way God's people could experience forgiveness of sins. They had to make sacrifice at the temple, and one time annually, the priest would go into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, and he would make atonement for all the people of God. So no temple, no opportunity for atonement. When God's people are displaced, they cannot practice their religion the way God's demanded that it be practiced. They had a significant religious problem. The second problem for God's people during this time was a political problem. You see, a town without walls would have been vulnerable to attack from the enemy. That's what we talked about this series is about. And so there was no way these people could rebuild the temple and really worship God because they'd be constantly in fear of invasion from other armies or other world powers who would like to come and take control of this small group of people. So God raises up two men to solve the problems with his people during this time in history. The first man is a man named Ezra. And Ezra led a group of people back after kind of two other groups of God's people made the 800-mile trip from Babylon to Jerusalem. Ezra leads a big group back, and Ezra, with some of the guys who are already there, rebuilds the temple of God. And Nehemiah, under, under 
his leadership, God allows people to be led back to Jerusalem for the purposes of fortifying their walls. So God had a solution to their political and their religious problems. And God used two men who were willing to sacrifice whatever it took for the cause they had been ordained by God to accomplish to the mission that God had set before them. And as I've prayed about this and I've studied this, it really sounds familiar to the culture that we're living in today. We have a lot of religious problems and we've got a lot of political problems. Our culture today would like to strip the Lord God from the very fabric of our lives. Our culture would go as far as to say that the gender a person is born with is now no longer relevant. And in fact, the gender of your choice is the thing that matters. So choose whatever you like and do whatever you like. And our political system has unfortunately all too often supported this kind of plurality. Where we just accept any view as though it's equally as valid friends. The Bible is the view that is valid. And the truths of God's word are the views that we must hold. And Nehemiah and Ezra were as much in the middle of that kind of a conflict as we find ourselves in even today. And it's a cultural phenomenon. A whole culture of people in Nehemiah's day needed revitalization and transformation. And the same cultural revitalization and transformation is needed for us today. And that starts with individuals who are willing to really take a look at their own hearts and their own lives and assess to what extent the walls and barriers in my life that protect me from cultural influence and from spiritual evil influence have been torn down. And it's time for God's people to stand up and be willing to rebuild. Let's go, let's go to Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 1. I want to talk to you about three things today to get our series called Rebuild started. This, this first sermon is called Rebuild, Realize. I want you to realize three things as we're going through the, our text this morning. The first thing I want you to realize is th- how to assess and understand the nature of the problems in your life. We're going to talk about that first. The second thing we're going to talk about is your need to realize how important it is to pray. And your need to realize how important it is to have a plan. So we're going to talk about the problem, the prayers, and the plans of Nehemiah. And and we're going to develop an understanding about how if we will take some of those same steps today, we can experience transformation personally and culturally. The Bible says this in Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year... While I was in the citadel of Susa, Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. Hear this. When I, Nehemiah, heard these things, I sat down and I wept. You've probably heard the expression that denial ain't just a river in Egypt. In our culture, we've developed that expression because human beings seem to have a tendency to be in a state of denial. It's easier for me, rather than take ownership of problems in my life and in the community in which I live, to simply deny that those problems are actually problems. 
We've all experienced this to some degree or another. Some reasons for this would sound very familiar. How about because the problem just seems too big? The problems that I'm aware of in my culture, in my community, or even in my own life seem too big for me to be able to tackle on my own. So rather than try and address those problems which seem bigger than what I can handle, I just deny that they're actually problems. Or how about that the problem is just a secret? And that to really deal with the problem, we'd have to tell the truth about what's going on in our heart and in our life and in the lives of people we care about. And so rather than let other people in on the secret and allow the truth to set us free, we deny that the problem exists and we just keep the secret buried deep inside. Or I don't know about you, but but in my life, I've always got a baseball game or a Bible study or a sermon to preach or groceries to buy or food to cook or vehicle to get gas for or change tires for or a lawn to mow. And the list goes on and on and on. I'm a busy guy. And sometimes it seems like the problems I'm aware of are just going to be too time-consuming for me to really address effectively. And so I deny that the problems are really problems. And I make up all kinds of excuses for these problems. But at the end of the day, those excuses are simply me wanting to do what's easiest for Trent, just like the excuses you make are all about you wanting to do what's easiest for you. To really understand the nature of the problems in our life, we've got to own them rather than deny them. But that's not the only thing. We've got to be sensitive to the problems that are in our lives. Now, I haven't read this yet, but in chapter uh, later on in, in what we're going to read, Nehemiah identifies himself as cupbearer to the king. So if you would do a little bit of research on what being cupbearer to the king means, what you'd find is that Nehemiah was the guy who was responsible for tasting the king's drink and eating a bite of the king's food before he would have eaten the food or taken a drink of his beverage to make sure that he was not poisoned. Now, the king had to completely trust this guy. This guy would have been like second in command in the kingdom only to the king himself. The king had to be certain that this man could not be corrupted by material things or political influence because at any moment in time, a guy like Nehemiah who was cupbearer to the king could be approached by a political adversary of the king and say, hey, look, I'll pay you X amount of dollars and give you X amount of power in the kingdom that I will reign in if you'll just let me poison the king. This was a person deep in the inner circle of the king himself. And this region and this particular king was the wealthiest and most powerful in the world at the time of this writing. So Nehemiah technically as cupbearer to the king was second almost in the whole world in terms of power and influence. And here's this little itty bitty insignificant poor impoverished disgraced city of Jerusalem over 800 miles away in a broken down village in a has been town with nobody doing anything cool there. And when Nehemiah hears of the state of the walls in that town, he is grieved and he mourns and he weeps. This is the guy who's attained all affluence and all type of material possessions, and every type of influence his life could have afforded him at this moment in time. And still, this man is sensitive to the brokenness in the lives of people he cares about. And in our own lives, it's so easy for the enemy to let us get a little bit affluent, 
or accumulate a little bit of material wealth or develop a little bit of influence and all of a sudden get insensitive to the needs and the brokenness in our own lives and in the lives of the people we care the most about. This is one of the most profound things uh, I find about Nehemiah. It's his ability to really care about people. No wonder he excelled and became such a great leader. Because he really had a heart for those in need. You know, Jesus Christ emphasized this in the New Testament, Luke chapter 10, by talking about a good Samaritan. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 30, Jesus says, A young man was walking from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. The robbers stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him and he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for the extra expense you may have incurred. Which of these three, asks Jesus, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The experts of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told them, go and do likewise. Friends, for our culture to fall deeper and deeper into a state of depravity... All that has to happen in the church is for Christians to stand idly by and do nothing. We have to care. We have to be broken by the brokenness of others. And we have to be willing to sacrifice what's required to really get immersed into the problems our world is facing and confront them head on. If we pick up our text in the next part of chapter 4 from Nehemiah uh, chapter 1, the Bible would say this. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, the decrees, and the laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, even if you are exiled, people are at the farthest end of the horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Lord, these are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, the king. I was cupbearer to the king. 
Have you ever gotten a really bad bit of news ever in your life? You know, that one phone call that just drops you to your knees or that one report that really causes your whole world to shift on its axis. If you've ever had that happen to you, you've probably done what I've done and hopped onto WebMD or Wikipedia and tried to figure out what exactly what the doctor said means for you. And before you know it, you've diagnosed yourself as terminally ill to be dead in the next two to three weeks, right? Or when the stock market crashes, we're calling our broker immediately seeing if we can allocate funds from one investment to another to protect our material wealth. Or I'm picking up the next self-help book or I'm calling the next psychologist or searching for that next bit of information or piece of knowledge that would allow me the capacity to do what we should never do when confronted with that kind of news, which is assume control over the situation. And the thought is, if I can learn enough about this, and I can gain enough insight, and I can talk to enough people, and I can accumulate enough data, then I can have the control and the power to really overcome this particular obstacle or circumstance in my life. Friend, the enemy wants you to do exactly that. But what's Nehemiah's knee-jerk reaction when he gets this devastating news from Jerusalem? His first impulse is to pray. Now, what we don't really understand, because I haven't read the first part of chapter 2, is that from the month Hanani, his brother, reports to him this grievous news about Jerusalem, to the month that Nehemiah is actually in the presence of the king and discloses his request that he be permitted to travel back to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall, that's about a four-month-long time period, from about our December to about our month of March. What is Nehemiah doing in that length of time? He is fasting, he is mourning, and he is praying. His first instinct and impulse is to take his need to the throne room of the God who rules the universe. Hello! That should be our obvious first impulse. And then look at how Nehemiah prays. If he were going to give instructions on how to pray, he would say, the first thing you got to do is be willing to put some time into your prayers. And some of us as Christians, we really do pray and take things before God, but that lasts about 30 to 45 seconds. And then I expect the God of the universe to immediately yield this result or that result or obey this request or respond to this need. And when he doesn't, I do the thing that I shouldn't do, which is to take responsibility for that situation back in my own hands and decide Trent knows best. Nehemiah would say, man, you've got to spend time. You've got to mourn and fast and pray, sometimes for months, sometimes even for years before you're really ready to execute some plan of action. But after we spend some time, there's got to be a period of confession involved if we're really going to take our needs and requests before the throne room of God. Nehemiah does confess the sins of the Israelite people. Lord God, you know your people have sinned. We have not obeyed the covenant you've established with us. And we knew that not obeying the covenant would cause the calamity and catastrophe we're experiencing in life. But then he makes it personal. God, I have also sinned. And not only me, but my family is also guilty of sin. 
And friends, it's when we confess our sin to God and God inclines His ear to that confession and forgives us of that sin that we can then adequately acknowledge God for who He is, that He is our Lord, He is our Master, He is sovereign over the universe. And in Nehemiah's prayer, he uses the type of language to describe God as His Master to whom He is slave. Now remember the description I gave you on Nehemiah. This guy is second only to the king. Did that go to his head? That every material benefit or influential opportunity could be afforded him at a moment's notice? Did that go to his head to where he doesn't still acknowledge Jehovah God as his Lord and Master and acknowledge himself as a servant of that same God? Absolutely not. He makes it clear. God, you are the Lord God of heaven. You are terrible and mighty. And I know that it's going to require you to help us, your people, do this thing that needs to be done in the land you promised our forefathers. We've got to spend time seeking God through prayer. We've got to get honest with ourselves and with God and really confess. And then we need to acknowledge who God is. That He is Lord and He is Master. The last thing Nehemiah does is make his request known to God. Nehemiah understands he's going to have to go to the king and he's going to have to ask permission to do this thing. And he says, God, remember the covenant you've established with your people. Now you need to read and you need to write down somewhere Deuteronomy chapter 30 verses 1 through 4. This is what Nehemiah is talking about here when he prays to God. God, you told your servant Moses that if your people would disobey your covenant, we would get what we're getting right now. We would literally be sent to the farthest ends of the horizon. But God, I acknowledge that you, as Lord and Master of the universe, are not overcome by how difficult it's going to be to reassemble your people, even if they should be at the far ends of the horizon. God, I know there is no one outside of your reach. So please, Lord God, remember the covenant you established with your people and lead us back to your city, to the land you promised us. Nehemiah is using Scripture in his request to the God of the universe. And that's not a bad strategy. So let's move forward in our text and go to Nehemiah chapter 2, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read you the next nine verses here. The Bible says, In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of the heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight... Let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, How long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they'll provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? 
And may I also have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he'll give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. Hear this, church, and because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king also sent army officers and cavalry with me. You've got to realize the nature of the problem. You've got to realize the need for prayer. And friends, you also got to realize the necessity of a plan. You've got to realize the necessity of a plan if the walls in your heart have been torn down and make you vulnerable to the influence of the enemy. Or if in your community damage and catastrophe have struck and your community is now vulnerable, either spiritually or physically, you've got to have a plan to be successful in your endeavor to overcome those things. The first thing Nehemiah understands is that he has got to be supported. He has to recruit support. Now, he's fasted and mourned and wept for four months. And he is in the king's court, handing king his wine, handing the king his his food. And the king notices something is up with his boy, Nehemiah. And, And so the king says, Nehemiah, obviously you're not feeling bad. But you seem ill. This surely has has something to do with the sadness of your heart. I want you to hear this, guys. So many of us in that moment when somebody says, Yo, man, are you doing all right? Lie. And we say, No, everything's cool. I just must not have gotten enough sleep last night, King. Or I must have eaten something a little funky. Or, hey, you may want to wait to drink that wine because I don't know what's really maybe going on with it. You guys can't rebuild the walls in your heart and in your families and in your lives without key support. And to recruit the kind of support you need, you're going to have to be totally honest about what's going on deep down inside your heart. You've got to be totally candid and say, you know what, as ugly as this sounds, this is why I'm distressed. This is why I've been weeping. This is why I've been mourning. This is why I seem sad and I seem down and I even seem broken. Here's what's going on with me deep on the inside. You've got to open up and get vulnerable to people so you can get the kind of support that's going to, that's going to influence the success of your mission. You can't do it alone. And Nehemiah was candid. And he appeals directly to the king in a way that culturally would have made sense to the king. At this moment in time, King Artaxerxes in the region he ruled had pretty um, complex burial rites and systems. And so when Nehemiah says, King, the, the, the town where my ancestors are buried is in disrepair. Would you please allow me to go there and, and make sure that their burial sites are okay. And do some rebuilding in that town. That connected with the king. And so Nehemiah is able to use his influence in a way that allows him to carry out God's plan. And so not only do you have to be able to share your heart with people to really recruit support. You've got to be operating your day-to-day life as a person of integrity and consistency. Did you catch that? You've got to be operating in your day-to-day lives as a person of integrity and consistency if you're going to recruit the kind of support that you need to totally renovate your heart and rebuild the walls that the enemy has torn down. 
Nehemiah was a foreign guy with no family connections to the king, yet he was the guy in all the kingdom that the king trusted the most. How do you suppose that's possible? It's possible because every day, despite being a foreigner in a foreign land, Nehemiah had integrity and consistency in his daily life. And so when he's vulnerable to the king and he really discloses what's going on, the king's like, what do you need to make it happen? And this is where Nehemiah's consistency and integrity really shines. He's got a specific plan. The king's like, dude, how long do you think you're going to be gone? And, he, and Nehemiah tells the king a specific set time. Here's how long this is going to take. And then Nehemiah's had enough forethought to say, King, look, not only do I need your permission, and not only is it going to take me this long, I need letters from you to allow me safe passage through the trans-Euphrates. Artaxerxes and Xerxes before him and Darius before him, these kings of this empire, had a system of rule where they set up governors in these different provinces. And Nehemiah would have known that traveling through provinces where different governors were ruling under the king... In the, in, the, in the way he was going to be traveling through with a large group of men and lots of supplies, it would have looked like a war party marching through kingdoms. And so Nehemiah, in his foresight, says, God, help me develop a plan that's going to help me execute your will here. And so he comes to Artaxerxes with this plan in place. Here's my set time, and I can see these dangers ahead. Can you give me some letters that will allow me safe passage through these lands? And then he also has enough foresight to say, hey, also, there's a guy who's in charge of all your lumber, Asaph. Can you also give me a letter that allows me to get some lumber from him? Because I'm going to need lumber for the citadel, for the wall. And, oh, yeah, I guess I'll have to have a place to live while I'm going through this process of rebuilding. The king's like, no problem, man. So often in our Christian lives, we excuse lack of planning and lack of organization with an overestimate of our own faith. In our Christian lives, sometimes we excuse our lack of planning and our lack of, an or, of organization with our overestimation of our own faith. I'm just going to run headfirst into the situation with no plan and no forethought, and I know the God of the universe is going to do something incredible in my situation. Can God do something incredible in that situation? Absolutely He can. But God gave you a rational mind, friends. And he expects you to use it. And if we're going to transform our culture religiously or politically, or if we're going to rebuild our community that's been ravaged by storms, we've got to use our rational minds. And we've got to have a plan. And we've got to have enough forethought and foresight to understand what's going to lie ahead a little bit. And through prayer and understanding the nature of the problem, God will help us come to an understanding of what we've got to do. Now, if I'm Nehemiah at this point, I feel like the biggest, smartest, studliest guy on the planet, right? You're second in command only to the king. The king's just given you letters that grant you free passage through his kingdom. He said, take whatever lumber you want. Spend the time you want to spend at your hometown. Do the project you want to do. Nehemiah, you're the guy. Of course he could have gotten egotistical or narcissistic. But to whom does he give credit for his success in these endeavors. Let's check out verse 8. The last part of there. The Bible says this. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me. The king granted my requests. 
You see, Nehemiah knew all along that it was God's hand upon him and God's involvement in the situation that was going to determine his level of success. That's the key piece of the plan that you're going to implement in your own life as you rebuild the walls that have been torn down and destroyed over time. If God's not in it, you won't be successful. Some of you under the sound of my voice as I'm preaching and teaching about this this morning, you already know what walls in your life have been torn down. You know the areas in your life that the enemy has been working on you and weakened you and even disabled you. And you know from what I've talked about this morning what you need to do to get back on the horn. You need to be sensitive to that reality and not deny it, but instead take ownership of it. And your impulse, as far as that's concerned, shouldn't be to get more knowledge or more understanding or more anything. Your impulse should be to pray and to pray as long as it takes. And then if you're really careful and you're really consistent, the God of the universe through your prayers will come into your circumstance. And by you disclosing to your church family and to those here this morning what's going on with you, and by developing a plan with those people and then trusting in God to help you execute that plan, you will have success. So I'm going to close this morning with a prayer. And after I pray, we're going to give you an opportunity to respond this morning. And it is going to be my prayer that anybody under the sound of my voice who needs to experience God's power in rebuilding their walls will take that opportunity today. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thanks so much for this opportunity to learn from your word and to hear from you and to understand the ways we can go about rebuilding the walls that have been torn down in our own lives. We've got to realize the problem and own it and be sensitive to it. We've got to realize the need for prayer and we've got to pray and we've got to keep praying. And then we've got to understand that we need a plan. We need people involved and we're going to recruit those people by being candid and open and vulnerable with them. But most importantly, God, we need you involved. And so I pray that this morning these prayers will be answered and that men and women across this auditorium will be moved to start that process in their own lives. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.